Will you please open your Bible to John chapter 18, if you haven't already? If you don't have a Bible or didn't bring a Bible, you can use a Bible under the seat back in front of you. If you're doing that, you'll find John 18 on page 588. So that's where we'll be this morning. And here is the scene so that we're set up to get into our text today. Jesus was distressed deeply and praying in a garden in the middle of the night. He had pleaded with his disciples, with his closest friends for help and to pray with him. And they slept while he was praying. And while that was happening, Judas, his missing disciple, his twelfth disciple, he was busy betraying Jesus to Jewish leaders who wanted him dead. The garden was a familiar spot for Jesus, and so Judas knew right where to find him on this night. And he did find him. And so Judas came at the beginning of chapter 18 with a band of soldiers and torches and weapons. And they arrested Jesus and they bound him. And then they led him off to the high priest complex where he was illegally interrogated by a former high priest named Annas, and then he was subjected to a, a mock trial by the current high priest, Caiaphas, which John actually doesn't mention, but the other gospel writers do. And then he was led off to the Roman governor. Verse 28, and that's where we'll be today. We can also find out by reading in Matthew and Mark and Luke that right before this, when Jesus stood before Caiaphas for that mock trial, we find out that he was slapped, he was spit on, and he was mocked. So he's been arrested, he's bound up, he's been mocked, he's been spit on, He's been slapped. Then, verse 28. But before I preach this sermon, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the words that we have from you today. And I know, having read ahead and studied ahead, that we do not want to respond to Jesus the way Pontius Pilate did. And I'm afraid that some of us are doing that and don't know it. And I'm afraid that there are people here who know they are not interested in Jesus and may leave here still disinterested in Jesus. And so we pray. And we ask God that you would Do a work that is behind the scenes in our hearts and in our minds so that we will receive these words as truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We had to, Greg and I had to switch microphones because the one that I had was not working and so I put it on. But evidently, Greg's, Ears are very differently shaped than mine. <laughs> and so I just need to adjust it. I'm sorry. So I hope that won't be distracting. I might have to play with it more. I have 
I think, freakishly small ears. <laughs> I've noticed that. And I've heard as you get older, your, especially for men, your nose and your ears keep growing. So I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> to half of that. So there are two parts in our text today. And this first part takes place outside the governor's mansion. And then the second part will take place inside the governor's mansion. Verse 28. So we're outside the governor's mansion first. Then, after everything we just talked about before I prayed, then... They led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. Uh, These headquarters were also called the Praetorium. The Roman governor of this region did not normally live in Jerusalem. Normally he lived in Caesarea, which was on the coast and about 75 miles away. But the Roman governor would temporarily relocate during major festivals and feasts to make sure that order was kept in this sort of capital city of Jerusalem. So, this governor is not normally in town. But he's in town because it is the week of Passover. Let's keep reading. It was early morning. They themselves did not the Jewish leaders, did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? A few things for us to note here. First, let's start with the Roman governor who's name we learn in verse 29 is Pilate. This is Pontius Pilate, whose existence was actually doubted by many biblical critics until 1961, when this big old piece of limestone was found in Caesarea, and inscribed on that limestone was his name, his title, and the term in office that he held. So it proved who he was and what he did and when he did it. We don't know a lot about Pilate from the Bible or from the records of history. But we do know a few things. We know that he was the Roman governor of this province of Judea. So Rome conquered Israel and They are under the rule of Rome, and Rome divided it up into manageable provinces. So this province, where their capital, Jerusalem, is, is called Judea, and Pilate was given the job to govern them from the year 26 to the year 36. So he is a politician. We'll talk more about him in a few weeks, because in chapter 19... We'll read the rest of this interaction between Jesus and Pilate. And I think there'll be some interesting things for us to see and learn, especially in in an election year. So Pilate is a a politician. So he is after, he's after power and he is after prestige back home in Rome. And he has been sent to uh, a very difficult place in a very difficult time. And he's given a very difficult task. His task as Roman governor of Judea would be to keep peace and stability. This is interesting. Think about this. His job was to keep peace and stability in the Middle East because Rome depended heavily on their resources. At this time, it was mainly corn in Egypt. And so he had to make sure that it stayed peaceful and stable, that he squashed any kinds of revolutions or uprising or anything like that. 
That's the task he's given. And that was, right, and is a very difficult task. So, trying to get peace and stability in the Middle East, that's not a new problem. That problem has existed literally since the beginning of human history. So you know, we're, we're still struggling there. What else do we know about Pilate? We know that he was harsh. We know he was brutal. We know he was not happy about the post that he was given. And he appears to have been an anti-Semite. He did not care for Jews. We can read one thing in Luke chapter 13 in our own Bible. In Luke chapter 13, we're told about some Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. It sounds like he killed a bunch of Galileans during some sort of worship. We also know that at the very beginning of his deployment, so maybe around that year 26, at the beginning of his deployment, he made an initial visit to Jerusalem. And when he made that initial visit to Jerusalem, he had a sort of parade behind him with soldiers, and they all had banners. And now remember, this is the capital city right, of Israel, and they are under Roman rule or Roman oppression. Of course, the Jews do not like this. So what does he do on his initial visit? He comes into town with banners, and these banners have the image of the Roman emperor Tiberius on them, sort of flaunting his power and control over them. So the Jews protested, and they protested all the way back to Caesarea, 75 miles, and there he got into a a fight basically with them and threatened to kill every one of them. So, he does not have a good relationship with the Jews. He has enraged them. He's not in good standing with Rome. He's, of course, not in good standing with the Jews. That's who Pilate is, and that's where he is. So, what else do we find out? Uh, The refrigerator is open, by the way. I can hear the refrigerator dinging in our kitchen. And I will not be able to focus if that does not get closed. It was early morning, we're told. It was early morning, so the sun is up, the, uh, the roosters are crowing. We learned that in the beginning of chapter 18. It's probably between 7 and 8 a.m., if you're trying to imagine when this is taking place. Incidentally, I love the sound of a rooster crow in the morning. We have two roosters, and it took some getting used to years ago, but I love the sound of a rooster in the morning. We're actually trying to uh, replace or get rid of one of our roosters. He's big and red and green. I think he's going to be beautiful. So if you're interested in a rooster, (laughs) come and see me after service. So it's early morning, and Pilate had to go outside, right? He had to go outside to them because what he may have considered to be silly ceremonial laws. You remember hearing that when we read verse 28? They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So what that's all about is that for Jews, they would, if they went in and ate or drank or sat down into a Gentile, a non-Jew's home, that would make them unclean. And there'd be things they'd have to do to get clean again. Well, they're having a huge meal that night. The Passover meal. And so if they were to go in there, They probably wouldn't have time to do the things they needed to do. It would disqualify them from eating the Passover meal, and so they stay outside. So think about this. This is sort of funny that they are very careful to observe God's laws. And what are they seeking to do as they carefully observe God's laws? 
kill God. That was almost the sermon today. The ways that we follow rules and the ways that we follow ritual and the ways we get passionate about this thing or that thing, but in the end, maybe don't actually love God and aren't serving God. So here they are, they're so careful to observe God's laws. And what are they doing? They're seeking to kill Jesus. And who is Jesus? He's God. So Pilate has to be agitated because normally the way this would work is not that he came out to them, but they would come into him and they would be brought into his courtyard at least. It's early in the morning. He already doesn't have a good relationship with them. So he is forced to come outside and he asks in verse 29, what accusation do you bring against this man? Verse 30. They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Which sounds to me like more of a deflection than an answer. The truth is that they have no accusation. At least they don't have any accusation that a Roman governor is going to give a rip about. What happened in Caiaphas' home just before this is Jesus what committed they thought to be blasphemy. Well, the Roman governor does not care about blasphemy. So they're silent so far. They'll have an angle, but right now they just sort of deflect it. Hey, we wouldn't be here if we didn't have an accusation. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. In other words, why are you bothering me with this? Why are you bothering me with this? Here's why. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That's why they need Pilate. The right to inflict the death penalty had been taken. It's one of the things the Romans did, it looks like. They took that right from the Jews. The death penalty was only something that the Romans could do. And they want Jesus executed. So they tell Pilate, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That's why we're here. Verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Let's pause. Before we head into the governor's mansion, let's pause. I think verse 32 is a break in this narrative. So where John is telling the story, the narrative of Jesus on his way to the cross here, and he's just giving you details. Verse 32 is a sort of commentary break right in the middle of it that Sort of stands out if you're paying close attention. So I looked more closely because I think then that 32 is, is very important to John. Verse 32 again. This. So what is this? Well, we look right before and we read about the Jews wanting Jesus to be put to death. Wanting the Romans to kill him. They don't want to kill him. They want the Romans to kill him. So this, Jesus being put to death by the Romans, was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Kind of death. So the Romans and the Jews had different kinds of death. Specifically, the Romans and the Jews had different forms of execution. If you were in Jewish culture and you were given the death penalty and you were going to be executed, what was their mode of execution? It was stoning. And if you were a Roman, in Roman culture, their form of execution, as we know, Jesus' head is there, was crucifixion. You would be crucified, nailed to a cross, hung from a tree, the Jews do not want to stone Jesus. 
The Jewish leaders could have done that. They could have committed mob murder. They had done that before. They're going to do that again in the book of Acts, you'll remember. Men like Stephen. But the Jewish leaders led by wicked Caiaphas. He's been plotting this for some time. Started back in John chapter 11. The Jewish leaders led by wicked Caiaphas want the Romans to kill Jesus. They want their hands to look clean at the end of the day. They want the appearance of a fair trial. Mob murder, people might question whether or not it was really deserved, warranted, wasn't right, it was illegal. So they want the appearance, they don't really want a fair trial. They want the appearance of a fair trial so that guilt will be presumed by any potentially sympathizing followers. They want his death to be a spectacle, I think. These are all reasons they wanted the Romans to kill Jesus. They want it to be a spectacle. They want him to be hung on a tree. They want him to be crucified. So this being put to death by the Romans is exactly what Caiaphas wants. This is exactly the kind of death that these Jewish leaders want. Everything is falling into place. The plan of Caiaphas, this high priest, as you read, this plan that he has is coming together perfectly. He's running the show, isn't he? It looks like it. So listen, here's the point of verse 32. Here's the point of verse 32. John knows what you're thinking as you read this. Especially for the first time when you read it. He knows what you're thinking. Caiaphas and the Jewish leaders are succeeding. Their plan is working. And then along comes verse 32. Which is telling us, well, yes. The Jewish leader's plan is coming together perfectly. But Jesus is running the show. That's the point of verse 32. Jesus is running the show. Verse 32 says, This death by the Romans, was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. At least three times. Back in chapter 3, verse 14. In chapter 8, verse 28. And in chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus had said that he would soon be lifted up. Do you remember that? Lifted up, by which he meant lifted up on a cross or killed the Roman way. So he had predicted this. He said that it was going to be so long before it ever started to unravel. So here's the question. Who is in control? What a great question for us. Who is in control? Is Caiaphas in control? Are the Jewish leaders in control? Are you in control? Am I in control? I want to be in control. I often think I'm in control. I definitely get mad when I lose control and then I lose control. 
But who's in control? It may look like Jesus is a passive player. But verse 32 says, look more closely. Is Jesus in control? Think about what we've seen so far as he's getting dragged around. He is the second Adam who was arrested in a second garden. So he's in control of geography. He caused a band of soldiers to fall down by saying, I am. So he's in control of human equilibrium. When Peter cut off the ear of Malchus, it was clear that Jesus was in control of Malchus's anatomy because he miraculously reattached his severed ear. Who's in control here? And we're about to see that he is clearly even in control of these conversations before the high priest and now before the Roman governor Pilate. He's in control of these conversations. We just have to look more closely. Some of you in your Bible, there's those little helpful titles that are put in front of different sections or pericopes. There's little titles that are given. And some of you, as you read through these passages that we're looking at, you might find some titles like Jesus before the high priest. Or Jesus before Pilate. But a far better title would be the chief priests before Jesus and Pilate before Jesus. Jesus is not on trial. The high priests are on trial. We'll see today and in weeks to come, Pilate is on trial. Friends, the whole world is on trial before Jesus. It's not the other way around. You and I are not prosecutors. And Jesus is not ever to be in the witness stand where we are tempted to arrogantly examine him and question him. That's called getting off to a bad start with Jesus. It's the other way around. Those of you who have come to really know and understand Jesus, you may have felt like he was in the witness stand for a while and you were asking him the questions and you were examining this and you were reading the Bible and you were checking it out and you were looking into history and you were looking into archaeology and you were reading this and you were reading that and you were discerning and figuring out whether or not this was something that you were going to believe. And then one day you realized that you were the one who was on trial. And you realize that the finger was being pointed at you. And the questions were being asked of you. And you had to give an account. And you had to justify. And you had to deal with conviction. And verse 32 makes that clear. That Jesus is not the one on trial. He is the one ultimately who is in control here. By the way, this will be a theme through the end of John's book. On one hand, the plans of wicked men are going perfectly. On one hand, the plan of Satan is going perfectly. But on one giant hand, God is working his plan to perfection. And it overrides and overrules, though it uses all the other puny plants. So, 
second part of our text, which takes place now inside the governor's mansion. Verse 32, again, it's a turning point. So Pilate, I think Pilate's getting a little nervous at this point. So Pilate brings Jesus inside the mansion. Jesus apparently is not concerned with being defiled. So Pilate, verse 33, entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? It doesn't take long for Pilate to experience one of Jesus' favorite conversational moves. He answers a question with a question. Do you hate it when people do that? Especially your kids, right? No, I'm the one asking the questions. He turns the tables. And he doesn't just ask a question. Jesus doesn't just ask a question. He makes it very personal. Doesn't he? He makes it very personal. Are, are, are you asking me or are you just a pawn? Is what this is getting at. Are you just on their errand? Or are you? What about you? That's a big question. That is a really big question. Are you really wanting, or is this just a game? Is this just a charade? Are you really seeking me? Do you really want to know who Jesus is? Do you mean that question? Or are you being sarcastic? Are you just trying to figure this out? Are you just trying to make a political move? Are you just trying to discern what you're going to do with these angry Jewish leaders? Or do you want the answer to that question? Do you really care? Is what he's saying. Do you really care? Do you want to know who I am? So I thought this week about what, what's behind this question Pilate has when he says, are you the king of the Jews? And I, I searched the Bible and history and tried to figure out what did Pilate know at this point? You know, how ignorant was he? Of who Jesus was. I'll make my case. I think Pilate knew exactly who. Jesus of Nazareth was. He obviously didn't know who he really truly was. Spiritually speaking. But I think Pilate knew who Jesus of Nazareth was. Jesus entire three year ministry. Has taken place under the nose of Pilate's. Governing. And Jesus, during those three years, we've read about many of them, he has said things and he has done things that it, if you say those kinds of things and if you do those kinds of things, you're, you're not going to fly under the radar. So Jesus may have started an obscure carpenter, but he's no longer that. Even if you remember back in John chapter 6, the people tried to make him king by force and he withdrew and since then his popularity has been growing to the point that five days before this encounter with Pilate as Jesus was entering into Jerusalem probably about the same time Pilate may have been entering into Jerusalem from Caesarea do you remember how that went when Jesus came into the city the streets were lined with people who were waving and laying down palm branches and they were crying out, King of Israel. As well, there's a Roman historian named Suetonius and he tells us that at this very time, there was a rumor going around that a king was about to rise among the Jews who would obtain dominion over the world. So based on all that. And some other interesting facts. I'm assuming. That Pilate was on alert. 
And I'm assuming that Jesus was on a watch list. And now he's got a face-to-face with him. And remember, it is Pilate's job, in part, to squash any national rebellions. So, what's he doing? He's assessing the threat. Are you someone I need to worry about, Jesus? And when he sees Jesus... I'm sure he was pleasantly surprised. Maybe put at ease a bit. And he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And the emphasis there is on you. Like this, are you? Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the one I've heard about? Are you the one that I might need to be worried about? Standing before me dressed like a poor man. You're dirty. Your face is bloody. Your face is swollen. You're chained up. You're being dragged around like a dog. So, I ask you. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, verse 34. Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? In other words, I'm not a Jew. I don't care. That's what he says. Am I a Jew? Your own nation. And the chief priests have delivered you over to me. Why have they delivered him to be executed? So what's his question now? What have you done? What have you done? Certainly don't look like a threat. So what have you done? And Jesus' response to Pilate is twofold. He is a king. And first, in verse 36, he speaks to his kingdom And then in verse 37, he speaks to his mission. So let's take them one verse at a time. Verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. First two words of his response. My kingdom. He has never said that before. At least not that I could find. Jesus, throughout his ministry, spoke of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, but never the kingdom of me. So he's coming out with it now, isn't he? My kingdom. And what does Jesus say about his kingdom? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, My servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So he says about his kingdom, my kingdom is not of, from this world. He said that at the beginning of the verse. And he said that at the end of the verse. And then in between is a supportive statement. My kingdom's not of this world because, hey, if. If my kingdom was of this world, if if my kingdom was a threat to you physically, he knows what Pilate's doing here. He knows what Pilate's trying to assess. If my kingdom were of this world, if it were a threat to you physically, then my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. So remember Pilate's question And what this is a response to. What have you done? And Jesus is saying, well, here's what my kingdom hasn't done. He has not led a physical uprising. He is no threat to Pilate physically or materially. Jesus is making that clear. He is a threat to him spiritually. And he's a threat to you spiritually. 
But in terms of earthly things, Pilate, you don't have anything to worry about. My kingdom is not of this world. Verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, so Jesus is speaking to mission now. I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So what does Jesus say about his mission, at least up until this point? I was born to be a truth-telling king. There's an idea. A truth-telling king. And so everyone who is of the truth listens to me. And if you're not of the truth, you don't listen to me. Verse 38. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Big debate over that verse for centuries. The debate is not being there, not seeing his body language, not hearing the tone. Was that question sincere or sarcastic? That's basically the debate. When he said, what is truth? I don't think Pilate cares. I think his question is sarcastic. I don't think he's interested in an answer. And my biggest reason for thinking that is that he asks the question and walks away. So I don't think that's what you do. You really want to know what the truth is. Based on what we know about Pilate, who he was, what he was after. Looking ahead and seeing what he does. This is not a man who is interested in the truth. When he says what is truth, he doesn't actually mean it. And friends, I hope you don't ask questions like that. I hope you don't ask questions like that. I hope your seeking isn't pretense. And Pilate says, are you really king? What is truth? He doesn't really care. But I hope you do. I hope that's why you're here. Because you want to know who Jesus is. You want to know more You want to know what the truth really is. So, what we just read, verses 28 through that first part of verse 38, this is, of course, just part of a much bigger narrative, right? Namely, the narrative of Jesus' road to the cross. This is part of a much bigger story. We're just looking at a sliver of it today. The bigger story, the bigger narrative that this fits in is this is the road of Jesus to the cross. And Pilate is part of that narrative as he interrogates and eventually we'll see self-servingly hands Jesus over to be crucified. And we know that Pilate stands before Jesus now as a man who is after power and a man who is after influence and prestige. And so he begins to assess Jesus to determine whether or not Jesus is a threat to his power. Are you going to get in the way of my agenda? What am I going to do with you? And we know what Pilate is after. 
And while Pilate is a bit nervous, and I think he's going to stay sort of nervous about Jesus, there's some things about Jesus and the, or the way he talks and, and what he's heard and, and, and probably just what it's like to talk with him and be there before him, like what happened with the soldiers. So I do think Pilate is a little anxious about all of this, but in the end, in the end, he dismisses any of those nerves or any of that anxiety and he dismisses Jesus. And ultimately determines that he's not. He's not a threat to him. Partly, I think, because Jesus, just in our text today, came out and plainly told him that he was not a threat to his earthly pursuits. Jesus sort of, apparently, set himself up there. As Pilate tries to determine whether or not Jesus is a threat to his political power, begins to question him about his kingdom, and Jesus says, well, my kingdom's not an earthly, physical thing right now, so it's not of this world. In other words, It's not a threat right now, Pilate, to your earthly pursuits. So when Pilate asks, are you a king? When Pilate asks, what is truth? He is not sincere. He does not want to know what truth is. He wants to know how Jesus relates to his earthly pursuits. Now think about that, friend. His earthly pursuits. Do you have any of those? Have you figured out what they are? Have you figured out the things in this earth that you are pursuing consciously, subconsciously, intentionally, unintentionally? Have you asked others, what do you think I'm about? What are your earthly pursuits? Now, Pilate knows what his earthly pursuits are. He knows what he wants. And so he questions Jesus trying to figure out not who he is, not what is truth, but are you going to get in the way of my earthly pursuits. And whatever the answer is there, that's going to determine for Pilate what he does with Jesus. So when he finds out that Jesus is no real threat, though still a bit nervous and anxious, ultimately, he hands him over. He's going to try to wash his hands and say, well, this isn't really my thing. But no, Pilate, it's your thing. You governed the whole thing. You handed him over. But he really wants to know Jesus, are you going to help me get the things that I want in this earth and in this world? Or are you going to keep me from getting the things in this earth and in this world that I want? And you cannot look to Jesus like that. That's putting Jesus in the dock. That's putting Jesus in the witness stand. That's putting Jesus in the interrogation room. And so you ask these questions... And you say you want truth and you say you're seeking after Him and you really want to know what is the truth. But for many of us, behind the scenes, we're not sincere in that. We're like Pilate. We just want to know whether or not Jesus is going to fit with our agenda and what I want. And so if Jesus is a means to that end, And sure, I love Jesus, and now I got a community of people who love me, or I have some sort of religious security, or I can feel like I'm going to heaven for sure, or uh, whatever it is. Or here are new people that I can begin to sell whatever I'm selling to. There's endless agendas that we can have that are earthly and worldly, and we cannot come to Jesus 
and evaluate Him based on our earthly passions. We have to be sincere. Are you sincere? When we say, are you the king of the Jews? Friends, do you really want to know the answer to that question? Because what if he is? There is no truth in the universe with greater implications. There is no truth in the universe with greater consequences. So do I really want to know who Jesus is? Do I really want to know what truth is? Examine yourself. Is this a game? Is this a charade? Is this pretense? Is this real? Jesus says something that I'm sure startled Pilate when he said, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Because he is the truth, right? He said that. So truth has to start with Jesus. Understanding anything has to start with Jesus. You can't understand anything if you don't understand Jesus. You can't understand yourself. You can't understand God. You can't understand this world. You can't understand math. Right? The math teacher. You can't understand anything if you don't understand who Jesus is. In other words, whatever you understand and whatever you know, it doesn't mean anything if you don't know Jesus. So this is the most important thing to know. And if you don't know it, you actually don't know anything. That's the great lie that I go around with knowledge and information and I, I, I have success and things are going well and so I'm fine and I don't really need this. And it's not true. So friends, do you listen to His voice? Are you of the truth? Do you want to know who Jesus is? If you do, listen. If you do, if you want to know what is true, if you really want understanding, if you really want to know who Jesus is and you seek it, listen, you will have it. You will have it. See, the problem is we're, we're just often not seeking when we think we're seeking. That's the point. Let me back that up with a verse. Proverbs 2, 3 through 5. Oh, Solomon writing to his boys. It's a great book. And he's just pleading with them for like the first six chapters. Guys, listen to what I'm telling you. Listen to what I'm telling you. Listen to what I'm telling you. You think you know everything. You don't know anything. You need wisdom. You need understanding. You need to be enlightened. He's pleading with them, right? But he says this in Proverbs 2, verses 3 through 5. This is such a great set of verses for us. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. But do you really want to know what truth is? You see? 
Are you really seeking it? So what is the truth that Jesus came to bear witness about? Like at the heart of it, most importantly, here are all the things Jesus said and here are all the things that He did, but here's what He ultimately said. Here's what He ultimately did. I mean, here's where from Genesis chapter 3, everything has just been leading to this death of Jesus. So what is the truth that He gives us? What is the truth of His Word? Ultimately. Well, who is God? Who is God? We all have answers to these questions. We all have an understanding of the universe and who God is and who we are. And your understanding, my understanding, your worldview, whatever you want to call it, we all have one of those. And it determines how we live. So you have an understanding of what life is and what life's about, and that determines how you live. Look at the big major decisions you make and you'll find out what it is that you actually believe about life. So what we're saying as Christians is that our understanding of life comes from God's Word. We're not picking and pulling from here and from there and from that book and this teacher and that philosophy and that instructor and in here and my mind and my logic and my own philosophy and my reasoning and whatever I can come up with, like this huge buffet table, right? As Christians, we're saying, no, my understanding of life that's going to determine how I live is from this book. Why is that book so important to you? Because we believe this book is God's word. So what does it say about who God is? Well, God is perfect. He is holy. He is good. And just. And right. All the time. And He has created. He's created you He's created me, and therefore I am accountable to Him. And He tells me, I have made you for me. I have made you to love me, God says. I have made you to worship me, God says. I have made you to organize your life around me. And ultimately, you won't have joy and you won't be happy if you don't do that. Because I'm the only thing and the only one who will never let you down. And if you do that, you'll be actually living the way you were built to live. So that's what he says to us. So you need to obey me. You need to enjoy me. You need to proclaim me. You need to believe me. You need to trust me. This is what God says. As who God is, who is man? Who am, who am I? I want to understand, who am I? And the Bible gets as deep as we could possibly get with that question. And the Bible says, for all the, there are wonderful things about you. You are created in the image of God. You're a Christian here, you're not a Christian. That is a wonderful thing that God says about you. And it is true. You are created in the image of God. You have desires and abilities that separate you from anything else in the created world. And you have those because you have been created like, in many ways, God. That's what it means. You're created in the image of God. Okay. So I love people. I love all people now, right? Because that's my understanding of who man is. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter if you're in a mom's womb, outside a mom's womb. You're an image bearer of God, so you're precious. You're important. 
The Bible says wonderful things about you as man. And it says alarming things about you. Alarming things about you. That your heart, which is the wellspring of life, Proverbs 4 says, it's where everything flows out of. Your heart is it's sinful. It's corrupt. I'm sure you're capable of doing good things and you do good things. But your heart does not want to submit to God. Your heart does not want to love God. It does not want to proclaim God. It does not want to obey God. It does not want to organize your life around God. We discover it wants to love me. And it wants to order life around me. And it wants to proclaim me. And it wants to obey me. And it wants to praise me. And it wants to worship me. And God says very clearly, you will be judged for that. You cannot live this life that I have given you every moment of and disobey me, dishonor me, and disregard me, and then be reconciled to me as if nothing is wrong and live with me for eternity. There is nothing more offensive or wrong that you could do than to disobey, dishonor, and disregard the God who made you and sustains you and has been nothing but good to you. So, if I understand that truth, I'm pretty nervous right now. Especially if I take a good hard look at myself and my actions and my words and my behaviors and I find out that I think that's true. That's true. So, the Bible tells us about Jesus. And we find that God is not just just, He is merciful. And He has figured out a way to deal justly and rightly with my sin and still have me in a relationship with Him forever. And that is by sending His Son Jesus to live and suffer and die in the place of sinners so that sinners like you and like me could be reconciled to God. If I believe that is the truth of God, I believe that is the truth of me, then there's no greater news I can hear than that news of Jesus. And so guess what I do in response? And what the call for you is to do in response? It is to believe Jesus. And it is to rely on Him and not rely on yourself. It is to enjoy Him and to delight in Him more than you enjoy anything else in this world. It's to obey Him. It is to proclaim Him. It is to throw away your efforts to earn God's favor and earn God's acceptance and accept that you have been accepted by God in Jesus and now I worship Him and love Him and obey Him because I get to, not because I have to. So friends, in conclusion, considering Pilate and Pilate before Jesus, His trial, Pilate is going to be found guilty at the end of this trial. Will you be found guilty? Or will you be found forgiven? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the word that you've given us that is true. And God, we thank you for the time here on Sunday morning before we get going in our day and in our week. We thank you for this interruption from your word to probably for many of us bring us back and and reel us back in and remind us of what is really important and of what is true. And so God, would you convict us if we have not been honoring you the way we should, if we have not been living as if you died for us, 
if we've been squandering the things that you've given us, God, will you convict us and help us to live more for your honor and your glory? And God, I pray for people who are here that that believe themselves to be seeking after you. People who, who say and feel that they want to know what truth is. God, I pray that it would be sincere. And God, I pray that as they hear your word and as they hear your truth, that they would believe. God, I pray for all the children who are here, all of our kids, God, who week in and week out hear your truth and hear your gospel, many of whom or most of whom are professing that they love you and that they believe you. God, I pray that that belief and love for you would mature. I pray that for my kids and for the kids of others. That that in these years as they become adults, that these professions of faith would become clear and credible before all of us. As their love for you deepens and widens and matures. I pray that they would desire to love you. And to obey you. And to tell others about you. And to find that obeying you and following you is the best, the funnest, the most enjoyable thing we could ever do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.